This hearing will come to order. Let me welcome you all to today's full Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing on nominations. I want to thank Senator Cardin for working with this uh, date and uh, the witnesses today and support, uh, supporting this important hearing today. Uh, we will have two panels today, the first on nominees from East Asia and Pacific region, and then at 11 a.m., Senator Risch will take over for a second panel of nominees from the South and Central Asia region. And I first want to welcome all the family members who are here today uh, for this distinguished panel this morning. Uh, the first panel of witnesses, we will hear from three nominees, Mr. William Height uh, to be ambassador to the Kingdom of Cambodia, Mr. Glenn Davies to be ambassador to the Kingdom of Thailand, and Ms. Jennifer Galt to be ambassador to Mongolia had an opportunity to meet personally with all of these well-qualified nominees, and I want to warmly welcome them and their families uh, to this hearing today. Uh, Thailand is the longest-standing U.S. ally in Asia. The Kingdom of Siam and the United States concluded a treaty of amity and commerce in 1833, when our nation was still in its infancy. In 1954, modern-day Thailand and the United States became military allies under the Treaty of Manila, and in 2003, the United States designated Thailand as a major non-NATO ally. Despite the historically tumultuous uh, domestic poli politics in Thailand, the commercial military relationship between our nations has blossomed. The United States is Thailand's third largest bilateral trade partner. Our militaries have averaged 40 joint exercises per year. We cooperate actively on issues as wide-ranging as humanitarian disaster assistance to law enforcement to disease control. However, the 2014 military coup in Thailand threatens to set back the positive trajectory of our relationship unless Bangkok moves decisively to restore democracy. So I look forward to hearing from Mr. Davies today on how we can maintain and grow our strong relationship while exerting efforts to see Thailand successfully move back to the democratic path. Cambodia represents an opportunity for the United States to build another longstanding partnership in Southeast Asia. After the unparalleled brutality of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge regime, uh, and the civil war that ensued in the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, Cambodia seems to have finally found a semblance of stability and democratic footing. The July 2013 elections and the 2014 power-sharing agreement between the ruling Cambodian People's Party and the main opposition groups unified as the Cambodian National Rescue Party are hopeful steps forward, although progress remains fragile. Cambodia is the poorest country in Southeast Asia, with GDP at about $2,600 per person. And the country is heavily, heavily dependent on overseas development assistance, including from the United States. So I look forward to hearing from Mr. Height on moving the democratic process forward, but also assisting Cambodia with its economic and development challenges. Next, but certainly not least, we will move to East Asia and Mongolia. Sandwiched between two world powers, Russia and China, uh, Mongolia has strategic, major strategic importance for the United States. Since transitioning from socialism to democracy in 1992, Mongolia has held six direct presidential elections and six direct parliamentary elections. The country possesses vast mineral wealth, although corruption and economic development remain serious issues in that country. Despite the difficult geopolitical environment, Mongolia has been a strong ally to the United States. Mongolian troops were part of the coalition during the Iraq War and continue to serve alongside U.S. troops in Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. So I look forward to hearing from Ms. Galt on how we can strengthen this critical partnership between our nations. And now I'll turn it over to Senator Cardin for this hearing. Thank well, you, Mr. Cardin. Chairman, first of all, thank you for holding this hearing so that we can uh, consider these three uh, nominees. I want to thank all three of them as you already have in their families. Uh, this is an incredible service to our country that you're willing to perform. And 
a place far away from where we are today. So it, uh, we know it's a, it's a sacrifice. We know your families are making those sacrifices, and we thank you for your willingness to represent the United States in these foreign policy posts that are strategically important uh, to the U.S. security and economic interest. Uh, Glenn Davies is well known uh, to many members of this committee for his recent service as the Special Representative for North Korea Policy, but he's also served as U.S. Representative to the IAEA and a senior positions in the East Asia Bureau and the Bureau of De Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. This experience will provide an important background for his service in Thailand, if confirmed, particularly given uh, recent events there. William Height is currently the Executive Assistant to the Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment at the Department of State, a position which he will, will be invaluable given the economic and development opportunities we have in Cambodia. Mr. Height also has held a senior post in Warsaw at the UN, Indonesia, and in Cambodia. So uh, he brings a great deal of experience to this position. And finally, uh, Jennifer Galt, who currently serves as our Council General in China, she has been a senior advisor in the Department of Public Affairs and also served NATO as well as previous posts in China and India. So, Mr. Chairman, we are very fortunate to have three career diplomats that we have before us who have devoted their professional life to service to our country. And I thank them again for their willingness to serve in three important posts in the United States foreign policy. You already mentioned Thailand is our uh, one of our longest uh, um, friendships, 180 years of cooperation in the public health, trade, uh, in security and education. But as you also pointed out, the recent coups uh, have presented uh, tremendous challenges to Thailand and the relationship with the United States. And the restoration of democratic governance must be our top priority. And I must tell you, it's taking too long and we must uh, push for early elections uh, so that we can move forward uh, with that uh, democratic country. I also want to point out that it is a tier three country on our trafficking in persons, and that is unacceptable. So uh, we, we need to continue to push uh, Thailand to do the right thing on behalf of ending modern day slavery. In Cambodia, they're on a tier two watch for trafficking. That's unacceptable. And they'll need our help, and again, in dealing with this. As you pointed out, it's the poorest country in the region and has uh, huge challenges. But lots of potential, potential in economics. Uh, the environmental issues are challenging, but there's a great uh, prospect there. And certainly, in ex expanding their democratic institutions will present uh, a full array of opportunities for U.S. Uh, mission in Cambodia. And Mongolia, it's one of the youngest democracies. Uh, it's um, been supportive of our military operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, and um, is a country that is the newest member of the OSCE, a country, uh, an organization where I've devoted a good deal of my attention. So I think all three of the posts uh, offer important strategic partnerships with the United States and great opportunity, but also challenges, and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Uh, Mr. Glenn Davies is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and currently serves as Senior Advisor in the Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs at the Department of State. Previously, Mr. Davies served as Special Representative for North Korea Policy, Permanent Representative for, to the International Atomic Energy Agency and the United Nations Office of Vienna, Austria, a Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary and Deputy Assistant Secretary East Asia and Pacific Affairs Bureau, 
Senior Advisor, Foreign Service Institute Leadership Management School, uh, Acting Assistant Secretary, Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights and Labor, uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, Political Director for the U.S. Presidency of the G8 with the rank of Ambassador, and Deputy Chief of Mission, U.S. Embassy, London, United Kingdom. Mr. Davies earned a MS at the National War College in 1995 and a BS from Georgetown University in 1979. Uh, he has been the recipient of numerous uh, Senior Foreign Service Performance and Honor Awards, uh, fluent in French. Welcome, Mr. Davies, and your family, and uh, we look forward to hearing your, your comments this morning. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. Thank you for the chance to appear before you today. I'm honored to be President Obama's nominee to serve as the United States Ambassador to the Kingdom of Thailand. I thank both the President and Secretary of State Kerry for their support. I also thank all members of the committee for this opportunity to speak to my qualifications. Throughout my career, <clears throat> I have worked to develop the experience to lead my colleagues in strengthening America's security and advancing its prosperity. If confirmed, Serving as Chief of Mission in Bangkok would draw on all of my 36 years as a Foreign Service officer. My family is my greatest strength. I'd like to express my love and gratitude to my wife, Jackie, daughters, Ashley and Teddy, son-in-law, Chapin, and granddaughters, Josie and Sibby. Josie and Sibby and uh, my wife and daughter are sitting behind me today. Thailand and the U.S. share a long and a deep friendship. Thailand is, as you said, our oldest treaty ally in Asia. We work together to advance regional security, expand trade, improve public health, assist refugees, counter human trafficking, illegal narcotics, wildlife tra trafficking, and protect the environment. Few bilateral relationships are as broad and beneficial. Over the past decade, Thailand's internal political divide has polarized Thai society. We do not take sides in this, but we do stress our strong support for democratic principles and our commitment to our historic friendship with the Thai people. Since the coup, the US has publicly and privately made clear our concerns about the disruption of Thailand's democratic traditions and the limits placed on civil liberties, including freedom of expression and peaceful assembly. Democracy can only emerge when the Thai people freely and fairly elect their own government. As required by law, the US suspended certain assistance until a democratically elected civilian government takes office. When that occurs, our relationship can return to its fullest capacity. Our call for restoring democracy does not advocate for a specific constitutional blueprint. That is for Thailand's people to decide through an inclusive political process. If confirmed, I will support their democratic aspirations. Mindful of our long-term strategic interests, we remain committed to our security alliance. Thai and US troops fought by, side by side in both Vietnam and Korea, and together we hold many bilateral and multilateral exercises, including Asia's largest, Cobra Gold. These allow us to increase coordination and cooperation to respond to humanitarian and natural disasters. We collaborate extensively on public health issues, including research on a vaccine for HIV AIDS. The United States is Thailand's third largest trading partner. Our companies are major investors there. Our embassy in Bangkok, supported by our Consulate General in Chiang Mai, is a regional hub for the US government and one of our largest missions in the world. Our people-to-people -people ties are strong. Thousands of Thai and American students study in each other's countries. The Peace Corps has been in Thailand for over 50 years. Americans have long admired and respected Thailand's traditions and culture. His Majesty King Bumapun 
has led his people with compassion for close to 70 years and has worked tirelessly for their advancement. Thailand is a founding member and leading voice in all of the region's multilateral institutions. We work with Thailand and through those bodies to advance regional growth and security. We also work with government and civil society organizations to address human trafficking. If confirmed, I will encourage Thailand to take robust action to combat it. Thailand has been a key partner on humanitarian issues, sheltering thousands of Burmese refugees, as well as the Rohingya and vulnerable populations from some 50 nationalities. Thailand hosted a regional uh, conference in May on the migrant crisis in the Andaman Sea and Bay of Bengal. We stress the need to save lives and treat vulnerable migrants humanely. We also partner with Thailand to respond to natural disasters, such as the earthquakes in Nepal earlier this year. We care deeply about Thailand and about its people. If confirmed, I will work closely with this committee to advance our broad range of interests in that country. While we will continue to do much with Thailand, we look forward to its return to democracy so our joint efforts can reach their fullest potential. We believe the Kingdom of Thailand can find reconciliation, establish democracy, and fulfill its historic destiny as a great and free nation. Thank you again. Uh, for considering my nomination, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Mr. Davies. Mr. Height, uh, Mr. Height uh, is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service and currently serves as Executive Assistant Office, uh, Office of the Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment in the Department of State. Uh, previously, Mr. Height served at the Department of State as Deputy Chief of Mission, U.S. Embassy in Warsaw, Poland, Council for Economic and Social Affairs, U.S. Mission to the United Nations in New York, uh, Economic Counselor, U.S. Embassy, Jakarta, Indonesia, Special Assistant, Office of the Undersecretary for Economic, Business, and Agricultural Affairs, uh, also as Finance and Development Officer, Embassy, Jakarta, and Indonesia, and Economic and Commercial Officer, U.S. Embassy, Phnom Penh, uh, Cam Cambodia. Uh, Mr. Height earned a BA at Pennsylvania State University in 1984 and an MA at George Washington University in 1986. His awards include Department of State uh, Senior Foreign Service Performance, Superior Honor and Meritorious Honor, as well as Joint Department of State and Department of Labor Award for Excellence in Labor Diplomacy. Speaks fluent to Cambodian as well as Polish, Indonesian, and German. Welcome, Mr. Haidt, uh, to you, your family, and friends. Thank you very much, Chairman Gardner, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, and Senator Kane. It is an honor and a privilege to appear before you today as the President's nominee to be Ambassador to the Kingdom of Cambodia. I'm deeply grateful to President Obama and Secretary Kerry for the confidence and trust they have placed in me by nominating me for this position. If confirmed, I pledge to work closely with this committee to advance the United States' broad range of interests in a peaceful, democratic, and prosperous Cambodia. I'm accompanied today by my wife, Soti, and son, Alan, who are sitting right behind me, to my right, and who have served overseas tours with me in hot cities and cold ones, too, uh, ranging from Cambodia, Indonesia, Poland, and New York City. I've spent the bulk of my 28-year Foreign Service career working on the interlinked challenges of promoting America's prosperity overseas and helping developing countries enact the policies and build the institutions they need to improve living standards, protect the environment, and compete in the global economy. One of my most memorable Foreign Service tours was in Phnom Penh from 1997 to 99, where I worked on a number of the most critical issues facing the country, including illegal logging, food security, and building a sustainable garment industry with decent and dignified conditions of work. Cambodia has changed dramatically since that time. 
GDP growth has exceeded 7% annually for the past decade, and as a result, the national poverty rate has fallen from well over 50% in 2000 to 17% in 2012. Life expectancy has increased substantially as well. If confirmed, I plan to make growing the trade and investment relationship between the US and Cambodia a top priority. Cambodia's performance on human rights and democracy issues has been more uneven. The most recent national elections in 2013 drew unprecedented public involvement, but were also marred by allegations of fraud. After a year-long post-election standoff, the ruling party in opposition reached agreements on power sharing in the National Assembly and reforming the country's election law and national election committee. But despite these negotiated agreements, concerns remain about provisions that appear to limit the activities of NGOs in the democracy area and that open the door for increased influence by the Cambodian military and other government officials in election campaigns. If confirmed, I will make it a priority to work with the government, opposition, and civil society to strengthen Cambodia's democratic institutions. The building of a vibrant, homegrown civil society is one of Cambodia's most impressive achievements since the 1993 Paris Peace Accords. But NGOs in Cambodia today face deep uncertainty in the form of a draft law on associations and non-governmental organizations that is soon to be considered the National Assembly. Provisions in this draft law would appear to limit the activities NGOs may engage in and create burdensome registration reporting requirements for them. The United States has spoken about these concerns and the lack of public consultations to date on the law. If confirmed, I'll work closely with civil society and the government to encourage the creation of stable and supportive conditions for a vibrant civil society in Cambodia. Cambodia has also made progress in recent years on several crucial humanitarian injustice issues. With assistance from the United States government and a number of NGOs, Cambodia has made great strides in reducing child sex trafficking, one of the saddest and most pernicious social problems the country has faced. The State Department and USAID continue to work with Cambodia to reduce labor trafficking, which remains a significant problem in Cambodia and its neighbors. The United States supports the work of the Khmer Rouge Tribunal to help the people of Cambodia find justice and hold accountable those most responsible for the atrocities committed by the Khmer Rouge. If confirmed, I'll work with fellow tribunal supporters and the Cambodian government to ensure that the tribunal completes its critical mission. The United States supports Cambodia's reemergence on the world diplomatic stage and has encouraged it to play an independent, principled role in ASEAN and other regional institutions. We have supported Cambodia's integration into the ASEAN economic community and collaborated with it in the Young Southeast Asian Leaders Initiative, or YSEALI. Through YSEALI, the United States is engaging young Southeast Asians and encouraging them to view their country's goals and challenges in a regional context. The program has been enormously popular in Cambodia, and if confirmed, I will make youth engagement a top priority. Mr. Chairman, it's fitting to conclude with a few words about Cambodia's young people. It is one of the youngest nations in Southeast Asia, with 70% of the population under the age of 30. Young Cambodians today are very favorably disposed towards the United States. Like young people everywhere, they want good jobs, a chance to engage in the political and social life of their country, and the opportunity to build a family. They are one of the main reasons I am optimistic about the country's future today. Mr. Chairman, thank you again for the opportunity to appear, appear before the committee today. I would, of course, be happy to answer any questions you might have. Thank you, Mr. Haidt. And finally, uh, let me extend a special welcome to a fellow Coloradan, Ms. Jennifer Zimdahl uh, Galt, our nominee for Mongolia. Uh, Ms. Galt is a proud graduate of Colorado College in Colorado Springs, 
and uh, her father is a professor emeritus at my alma mater of Colorado State University. And Ms. Galt is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service Class of Minister Counselor, currently serves as Principal Officer at the U.S. Consulate General in Guangzhou, China, a position she has held since 2012. Uh, previously, Ms. Galt served in the Department of State as Senior Advisor in the Bureau of Public Affairs from 2011 to 2012, uh, Public Affairs Advisor at the U.S. Mission to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization in Brussels, Belgium, and Deputy Director, Office of Public Diplomacy, Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs from 2008 to 2010. Uh, she also served as Public Affairs Officer, U.S. Consulate General Shanghai in China, Assistant Cultural Affairs Officer, U.S. Embassy in Beijing, uh, Assistant Public Affairs Officer, U.S. Consulate in Mumbai, and Information Officer, American Institute in uh, Taiwan. Ms. Galt earned a Bachelor's of the Arts, as I mentioned, from Colorado College, MA from John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, and a Master's in Science from National Defense University, MS from National Defense University. She's won numerous awards from both the Department of State and earlier from the United States Information Agency. Uh, she speaks Mandarin Chinese, French, Italian, Spanish, and Serbo-Croatian. Uh, welcome, Ms. Galt. Look forward to your, your, test, your comments today. Thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Me Member Cardin, Senator Kane, it is an honor to appear before you as President Obama's nominee to be ambassador to Mongolia. I am deeply grateful for the confidence the President and Secretary Kerry have shown in me, and if confirmed, I look forward to working closely with this committee to build on the already strong ties between the United States and Mongolia. My career in the Foreign Service spans 27 years, most of them spent in Asia. I joined the Foreign Service out of a commitment to serve my country and have consistently sought assignments where I felt I could make a difference and contribute to advancing an important relationship. The love and support of my family has sustained me throughout. I would like to take this opportunity to express my gratitude to my husband Fritz and my children Phoebe and Dylan who have traveled the globe with me and to my father Bob Zimdahl and my brothers Randy, Bob and Tom. I'm enormously proud that my daughter Phoebe, a rising college junior, is here with me today. This is an exciting year for U.S.-Mongolia relations as we mark the 25th anniversary of Mongolia's decision for democracy, a milestone that the Senate recognized in its June 1 resolution. Our partnership has grown stronger since then-Secretary Baker first visited the newly democratic Mongolia in 1990. As the only former Soviet satellite to choose democracy, Mongolia is an important model in the Asian region and, as the saying goes, punches above its weight on issues of strategic interest to the United States, including coalition military efforts, peacekeeping, and the promotion of democratic principles and values. Our relationship is one of shared interests and is characterized by enormous potential. There are many opportunities for the United States to deepen our partnership with Mongolia. I would like to highlight a few where I would focus my attention should I be confirmed as ambassador. Mongolia and the United States share a common interest in promoting peace and stability. Mongolia is a stalwart partner in Afghanistan and deploys capable peacekeepers wherever they are needed, including currently in Sudan and South Sudan. Just last week, the U.S. and Mongolia conducted our yearly multinational peacekeeping exercise, ConQuest. Mongolia demonstrates leadership in international fora to promote democracy and human rights, such as the Freedom Online Coalition and the Community of Democracies. Mongolia is a model of democracy and has demonstrated a willingness to mentor others in the region, offering training and exchanges with leaders from Burma to Kyrgyzstan. 
If confirmed, I would welcome the opportunity to work with Mongolian officials to advance our shared interests in these critical areas. Recent high-level engagement in Mongolia has demonstrated our commitment to enhancing commercial opportunities for U.S. companies. In the last six months, we resumed trade and investment framework agreement talks, launched a new economic policy dialogue, and the Millennium Challenge Corporation began the process of developing a second compact with Mongolia. Each of these initiatives is an opportunity to expand economic growth, model responsible business conduct, promote trade and investment, and create opportunities for U.S. companies. The Mongolian government demonstrated its interest in attracting foreign investment by signing and ratifying the U.S.-Mongolia Transparency Agreement in December 2014. The Mongolian Prime Minister is traveling to Washington and New York this week to deliver the message that Mongolia is open for business, our business. Mongolia's recent progress on a major copper and gold mine with a Western company signaled to the international community its renewed seriousness of purpose in attracting foreign direct investment. With large reserves of coal, copper, gold, uranium, and other minerals, there are many opportunities for U.S. companies in mining and related sectors. If confirmed, I would support these opportunities by actively informing potential U.S. investors about the investment climate and advocating on their behalf. I believe that two key components of U.S. support for Mongolia's democracy and its independence and leadership in the region are engagement with its nascent civil society and deepening people-to-people -people ties. If confirmed, I would continue the work of my predecessors in areas such as the rights of persons with disabilities. I would, if confirmed, continue our robust subnational cooperation as well, including the Alaska-Mongolia State Partnership and the sister city relationship between Ulaanbaatar and Denver in my home state of Colorado. If confirmed, I would also look forward to supporting one of our largest Peace Corps programs anywhere, with over 150 volunteers in country. Peace Corps volunteers work side by side with Mongolians in English teaching, health care, and community youth development. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, it would be the highest honor for me to serve our country as ambassador to Mongolia. If confirmed, I will do my utmost to ensure that the United States delivers on the strategic and historic opportunities of the next century of Mongolia's democracy. Thank you for considering my nomination, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Ms. Galton. Thanks to all of you again for your comments this morning. And since I can't just talk to you the entire time about uh, Colorado, uh, we'll have to uh, spread out the conversation a little bit. Mr. Davies, uh, 38 years in the Foreign Service, uh, your experience, thank you for your commitment. What's the biggest change that you have seen over that time, starting uh, from your uh, first experiences to today in terms of public diplomacy? Uh, in terms of public diplomacy, I think the uh, uh, the explosion in, um, uh, in, in, let's call it the globalization of media, has been the biggest change. Uh, when I came into the Foreign Service, the United States of America was uh, reaching hearts and minds overseas in um, very traditional ways, publishing millions of copies of magazines for young Indians every month, for instance, uh, using radio, uh, touring uh, music stars, and so forth. Today, uh, we can reach young people in most countries in their uh, shirt pockets through their mobile devices. Uh, and it requires a much um, uh, more considered uh, approach to how we uh, get the word out to peoples all around the world, in particular young people, about America, what it stands for, uh, and uh, why it is that they should look to 
the United States as a friend and ally. So it, it's, uh, the challenge has become much more complex, uh, but uh, I think we're making the changes necessary uh, to step up. And specifically to Thailand, uh, in terms of the length of the military coup, do we have any idea how long we are looking at this lasting, this military exertion of power? Uh, is there a way that the United States can influence the length of that or the timing or speed up the, the, the reforms for democracy and the free elections? And sort of adding a third component to that with the support and loyalists to the former prime minister, is it even possible to have free and fair elections in Thailand? Well, uh, I believe that it is possible for Thailand to have free and fair elections. They've done it in the past. In recent generations, they've had uh, decades' worth of experience of democracy. Uh, they can get back to that. Uh, the uh, current junta, um, the, the coup government, uh, claims that that is their aspiration. They've set up a, a very lengthy, somewhat elaborate process to get back to it. You're right. The goalpost does uh, continue to recede. That's a big concern. We want them to get back to democracy as soon as possible. We'd like to see elections uh, uh, very soon. Uh, but at the end of the day, the truth is, this is up to Thailand, its leadership, and its people to work out. Um, but uh, I have confidence they can do it. Uh, and if confirmed, uh, I'm going to bend every effort to convey to them the views of the United States and to encourage them to get back on that democratic path. Thank you, Mr. Hyde. Uh, Hun Sen has uh, ruled Cambodia since the mid-1990s, basically without interruption. Um, what do you see as Cambodia's likely political future should Hun Sen move towards retirement? Are there scenarios where there could be military uh, interference uh, if there's a retirement there as well? What do you do in such a scenario? Well, thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, there has been a lot of stasis at the top of Cambodia's ruling a ruling elite in the last 20 years. Um, uh, of course, in 2013, we had a very, a very good and meaningful election for Cambodia. It was the most open election in Cambodian history. The public participation was very broad, uh, very enthusiastic. The, the opposition party did much better than anyone expected. And even despite some pretty deep-seated irregularities in the, in the election process, so it left many observers with the with the feeling that there is there is a that with with a reformed national election commission and some additional support from the international community, Cambodia can take another step forward in the next election, just as they took a step forward in 2013. So there there is optimism that with 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 continued support, we could see a better democratic future for Cambodia. I, I don't deny, of course, that there are also concerns about increased military, the possibility under the new law for increased military uh, activity in the campaign. That law does permit, for the first time in Cambodia, the military and senior government officials to be involved, and that is a concern, uh, and is something we're going to have to monitor very closely. If, if, uh, if confirmed, I hope to do that. You mentioned the opposition party. How are the, how's the power-sharing arrangement working between the two parties, the CPP, the CNRP? Senator, that is a $64,000 question with respect right now to Cambodia. Uh, both the Prime Minister and Somrein Si, they have both, they've both spoken publicly about their desire to start this culture of dialogue. Their relationship is clearly more cooperative than at any time since I've been, in the 20 years since I've been following Cambodia. Uh, they have, um, we've, of course, and as a general rule, we encourage dialogue in Cambodia. We think that's very important to have constructive dialogue, peaceful dialogue that can help Cambodia put forward the reforms and policy changes they need to improve the lives of Cambodians, of ordinary Cambodians. 
whether that, this new, this new collaboration between the two will lead to that kind of genuine change, I think it's much too early to say, very honestly. And, and I think it's something that, if confirmed, uh, it is definitely something we're going to keep a very close eye on. Thank you, Mr. Haidt. And Ms. Galt, uh, in, your, in your opening remarks, you talked about Mongolia being the only uh, former Soviet satellites that state that had moved or transitioned toward democracy. Uh, yet, in preparing for this morning, uh, this morning's hearing, uh, the background briefings on Mongolia, it, the corruption uh, challenges to corruption at the, the local, local level uh, throughout the, the government, Yet we've had six presidential elections, open elections there. Uh, what more can the United States do to address the full transition to, to a democracy that is uh, reducing corruption but strengthening and building uh, democracy? Thank you, Senator, for your question. Indeed, Mongolia is a democracy, but it is a young democracy, and it shares many of the same challenges as other young democracies in terms of solidifying the rule of law. And I think there are two areas where we can continue our work with Mongolia, and if confirmed, I would look forward to doing that, to solidify and strengthen some of their institutions to combat corruption. One is to support Mongolia's leadership in international forum to promote democracy. Mongolia has shown a willingness to reach beyond its borders to export both democracy and, and security. Um, and we continue to work with Mongolia to strengthen their own institutions. And recently our economic, our increased economic engagement is very important in that regard. So with its signing of the U.S.-Mongolia Transparency Agreement, Mongolia has expressed, indicated its willingness to improve their own institutions to combat corruption and to combat transnational crime as well. Um, our new economic policy dialogue gives us another platform to talk about institutional reforms. And the Millennium Challenge Corporation is another tool that we can use to enhance Mongolia's democratic behavior. And the, the MCC leadership tells me that based on the successful completion of their first compact, they believe very strongly that Mongolia has learned um, many lessons from working with us on the, on the first compact. And if confirmed, I would look forward to working with Mongolia and working with the Millennium Challenge as they develop a second compact for Mongolia. Thank you, Ms. Galt and Senator Cardin. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and once again, thanks to our witnesses. In each of your countries, um, I think to a large extent, the success of our mission depends upon us standing strong on the principles of our country, the universal principles that we espouse on human rights, good governance, anti-corruption, rights of all individuals. Uh, that, to me, is the bedrock of America's foreign policy. And we've seen in too many places in the world where we have deviated from that commitment, uh, the stability that we hoped for did not exist and will not exist. So in all three of the countries, there are challenges in trafficking in persons. Thailand's probably the worst. It's a tier three country, which means it has failed. Uh, there are reportedly tens of thousands of victims in Thailand, mainly from other countries that have been trafficked into Thailand. Uh, for labor abuse and for sex trafficking. Obviously, that cannot continue. It's challenged more because in Thailand, 
uh, we are um, now past the one-year anniversary of this coup, and it was not the first coup in modern history. And I must tell you, my patience is running thin in Thailand. We talk about a commitment to early elections, and when the country is operating under a coup government, human rights are always going to be challenged, as we've seen. So, Mr. Davies, I appreciate uh, your view that we cannot intercede into the internal politics of a country, and I agree with that. But for the sake of the rights of the people of Thailand and for U.S. principles, uh, there must be an urgency as to Thailand proceeding with democratic elections and dealing with its human rights issues. Your comments? Thank you very much, Senator. I think that's exactly right, and I think that is job one for anyone who represents the United States and Thailand to bring home to, in particular, the current leadership, the uh, importance of uh, moving quickly, swiftly, allowing for, uh, if need be, catalyzing a, an open, inclusive public debate uh, about the way forward for Thailand. I believe most Thais do want to get back to democracy. Uh, the situation now is untenable. It's not good for Thailand, uh, first and foremost, uh, to have a suspension of civil, civil liberties, uh, sending uh, civilians to military, uh, through the military justice system and so forth. So um, uh, for me, if confirmed, uh, this would be something I would lean into uh, very hard uh, to convey publicly and privately the importance we attach to Thailand's getting back to uh, the democratic path, breaking this cycle of periodic military coups uh, that, quite frankly, goes all the way back uh, three generations to, uh, to the 1930s, uh, and putting Thailand once and for all firmly uh, and finally on the path to, uh, uh, to democracy. So um, I take your words to heart. Uh, <clears throat> I want to work with this committee to um, see this through. Uh, I do think <clears throat> it's not a job that's going to be done in an instant uh, because they are uh, a divided society, divided polity. Uh, uh, there are serious issues that have to be worked out domestically, uh, which is why I said it really is first and foremost their challenge to confront. But I think you're right. Uh, we have a role to play. They listen to us. We're going to use that bully pulpit. I, I thank you for your answer. Uh, we recognize it won't happen overnight, but it's already over a year since Ooh. this coup. And uh, I think many of us expected further progress than we've seen to date. So um, there's an urgency here. I just uh, hope that you will transmit that to the people of Thailand, that we, we're with them, but we will not tolerate the suspension of civil liberties. Yes, sir. Uh, in regard, Mr. Hyde, in regards to uh, Cambodia, uh, they're not doing much better in trafficking. They've been downgraded to a tier two watch list country. Uh, as we've already been pointed out, they're a poor country. So it is interesting that they are also designated because they're a source of trafficking. So it's not only that they are, uh, uh, they're, they're victimized by the people of their country being trafficked out, they're also people that are being victimized within Cambodia. So they have human rights issues. The most recent concern that's been expressed by human rights groups is that uh, the draft NGO law uh, has a serious concerns of NGOs, whether they're going to be able to operate uh, effectively in Cambodia. So would you just share with me and this committee your commitment to advance um, uh, the basic human rights uh, as our representative, uh, if confirmed, in Cambodia? Thank you very much, Senator. Uh, 
of course, promoting democracy and human rights has been a central part of our program in Cambodia since I was there before, ever since the, the 1993 Paris Peace Accords. And on the, on the, in the area of trafficking in persons, it's an area where U.S. involvement has made a real difference, both directly and through NGOs. We've really been able to give Cambodia good assistance, and as a result, as I mentioned in my statement, they've been able to make substantial progress on the issue of child sex trafficking. Now that, of course, is a particularly pernicious and dreadful problem, and I think it's important to give them credit for that progress. At the same time, as you mentioned, they are in the thick of, there's a pretty substantial labor trafficking problem in Cambodia flowing out to neighboring countries, flowing into Cambodia from its neighboring countries. And so it's certainly, there's much more work to be done in that area in terms of building cooperation between Cambodia and the labor receiving countries, especially Malaysia. Uh, there are, there's some evidence of complicity by government officials in trafficking. That's a big problem, and as well as a pretty much a complete lack of victim assistance. For when, when we find victims of trafficking, the government has very little assistance that they can offer. So that is something I'm absolutely committed to working on, that issue while I'm out there, if confirmed. And, um, and, is, and I think, like I say, it's been an area we've had great success before that we can be proud of, and, and we will continue to do that. I would also, on the NGO law, of course, the concern there is that is that it will limit the ability of the NGOs to do some of the good work they're doing. NGOs perform a range of important services in Cambodia. And we, we've, we've, we've spoken to the government and publicly about this law, and, and we frankly don't really see a need for it. We don't think there's a, a giant problem that needs to be solved by that. But if the government goes ahead with the law, as it appears very likely, they, they considered it in the National Assembly today in Phnom Penh, or you know, today, their time. They considered it and pushed it out to three separate National Assembly commissions. So it's, it appears that it's going to move forward. We've, we've counseled them to consult widely when they do it and to do it with a light touch, to focus on basic transparency issues, not to make it a giant um, problem that really squelches civil society in Cambodia. Thank you for that answer. Uh, one, one, if the chair would indulge me for one remaining question. Uh, Ms. Galt, uh, Mongolia is, is an encouraging country, a lot of progress being made. They're tier two on the trafficking, which means they still are not meeting the minimum standards, although the report does point out they are making progress, so they're moving in the right direction. Uh, as I also pointed out, they're one of our allies, but there are challenges on human rights and concerns about uh, uh, internationally recognized freedom for its citizens. I, I want to get your response to a potential issue and that is uh, Mongolia is resource rich, which can become a problem for a country if it's not managed properly. We have seen it as a source of corruption in other countries. We've seen it as a source of environmental problems in other countries. We've seen it as a management issue, creating uh, problems on democracy in other countries. My question to you is, my question is, how will you focus on our mission in Mongolia as to how they handle their resources to make sure that it's used for the benefit of the people of Mongolia and not used as a source uh, that could be problematic for funding corruption or uh, anti-democratic principles, uh, which we've seen in too many countries around the world? Thank you, Senator, for that question. First, on the issue of trafficking, indeed, 
Um, it continues to be a concern in Mongolia, and if confirmed, I would work very closely with the government of Mongolia to uh, combat trafficking. We have a State Department program working with an NGO in Mongolia uh, to raise public awareness of trafficking and to work to implement Mongolia's uh, anti-trafficking legislation. So I would look forward, if confirmed, to continuing um, in, on that front. I think on the corruption issue, you are absolutely right. This is very much on Mongolia's radar and very much on our radar as it develops its very rich resources. I think there are, again, two areas, as I said earlier, where we can continue to work closely with Mongolia to encourage them to develop these resources in a transparent and, and fair way. And if confirmed, I would look forward to doing that. The first is to, in, to continue to support Mongolia's leadership in international institutions, including the Freedom Online Coalition and the Community of Democracies, which are fora in which Mongolia can learn best practices and develop its own mechanisms and techniques for combating corruption domestically and for developing its economy. And then the second is our economic engagement. I think through working with the government of Mongolia to implement uh, the recently signed and ratified transparency agreement, that gives us an opportunity to work very closely with them to develop procedures, work, develop their institutions, strengthen their institutions to combat corruption. So I would look forward to working with them on both of those fronts in, in, in that challenge area. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and to the witnesses and to the entire panel of the seven nominees who are before us today. I'm only able to be here for the first panel, and I regret that because you all really do a credit to the nation with your extensive service, and I thank each of you and also thank your families and friends who are here and who have been supportive. Um, Ms. Galtz, if I could start with you, I, since we're j just finishing on Mongolia, I'm fascinated by a number of aspects of uh, the country and its uh, transition from socialism to democracy. In the Econom Economist Intelligence Unit's Democracy Index for 2014, Mongolia was ranked 61st out of 167 countries ranked in the Democracy Index. For a democracy this new that is transitioned from socialism, that's not bad. If you dig into the, the ranking, the EIU classifies Mongolia as a, quote, flawed democracy with high marks for electoral processes and civil liberties, but lower marks for government functioning, political culture, including a high degree of corruption in local politics. Talk a little bit about your uh, uh, game plan, if you are confirmed, to go in and, you know, accelerate the uh, pro-democracy trends and institutional improvements that Mongolia seems to be embracing, but that, that, that need improvement. Indeed, if confirmed, this would be one of my highest priorities, to work closely with the government of Mongolia to strengthen their institutions. Um, to combat corruption and to ensure a transparent and free market for external investment. And I think encouraging and advocating for more U.S. investment in Mongolia is one way that would be very useful and productive for encouraging um, transparent economic engagement in Mongolia. So that's one area that I would work on if confirmed. 
The second area is through the Millennium Challenge Corporation, as I mentioned earlier. Um, the Millennium Challenge leadership tells me that they feel very strongly that Mongolia has learned some good lessons from the first compact. And as they are engaging in their constraints analysis and negotiations on a potential second compact for Mongolia, that will be a tool that we can use to further influence the um, institutional development and to ensure that Mongolia's economic growth going forward is equitable and, and fair. I think a third area I mentioned before, but we have an ongoing um, engagement and a grant to the government of Mongolia working with them on justice reform. And that's a third area that I would have a high priority in terms of improving their institutions and their capacity to handle corruption and to deal transparently with corruption issues. There, there have been some high profile cases in Mongolia where foreign investment uh, foreign investors have been caught up in business disputes and then blocked exit visas to leave and uh, Canadians in one instance an American. Those have to create challenges in terms of uh, encouraging more investment. What is the progress of the Mongolian government in putting reforms in place that would, you know, avoid those unless, you know, absolutely necessary. In, indeed, I think investor confidence is, is at a low point right now in Mongolia. But again, our recent economic engagement gives me a lot of encouragement as to potential for a positive trend in the future. And if confirmed, I would continue to work very closely on our economic front. So number one, implementing the transparency agreement. Um, is one very important platform. A second is our economic policy dialogue, which gives us another opportunity to engage. And then finally, the Millennium Challenge would be another opportunity to grow Mongolia's capacity um, in terms of its institutions. So those would be three areas where I would work very closely were I to have the opportunity. Um, and finally, uh, the, the United States is sort of deemed by Mongolia as the most important of its, quote, third neighbors, um, so the, the, the neighbors that don't have borders with Mongolia. Um, as we're dealing with so many issues on this committee and in the Senate generally about bilateral relations between the United States and China and the United States and Russia, I'm interested in how Mongolia handles those bilateral relationships and what are the current kind of temperature in, the bio, in those sets of bilateral relationships between Mongolia and China and Russia? Indeed, M Mongolia is in a tough neighborhood. Uh, I think the chairman mentioned sandwiched between Russia and China. And so it is very much in Mongolia's interest to maintain a stable, positive relationship with both Russia and China. It, Russia and China are both strong economic partners to Mongolia. China purchases 80 plus percent of Mongolia's resources. So it is very important for Mongolia to maintain a positive economic trade and political relationship with, with China. However, I think there's room for all of us. There's room for Russia and China and for Mongolia's third neighbors. And so if confirmed, I would look forward to continuing to enhance our both our political, economic, and military partnership with Mongolia. I think in addition to the strength of those aspects of our partnership, US soft power is a very powerful force in Mongolia. Um, young people are looking to the United 
United States, young people are studying English, thanks in large part to our Peace Corps over the years, um, and studying in the United States and returning to Mongolia. So the influence of the United States as a fellow democracy and our shared values is a powerful offset to the economic power of, of Mongolia's neighbors. Thank, thank you for those answers. One question for you, Mr. Haidt. Um, I noticed that there are analysts that are concerned about the prime minister's placement of his sons in political positions of power uh, within Cambodia and what that might portend in the future. We've seen in other nations around the world, whether it's Libya or Egypt or Syria, um, you know, the, the, the once a ruling um, structure, ruling family starts to be kind of perpetuated, that can lead to really significant internal dissent. What, what is the likelihood of that or your assessment in, uh, in Cambodia? What can the United States do to promote a um, you know, more vigorous democracy, not confined just to single family? Thank you very much, Senator, for that question. Uh, of course, um, Hun Sen's sons, are, as you mentioned, are several of them are active, very active in the, in the CPP. Uh, our sense is looking at that, that's like, like many political parties, that's a complex structure. There are lots of people, there are lots of people who want to move to the top. It's no means, the folks that I've talked to, there's not a sense that there's some preordained path for the two of them. It's not, it's not North Korea. There is, it is a competitive, big competitive party with lots of uh, ambitious people in it. And so even despite the obvious birth advantages the two have, I'm, I'm, my sense is that there's no guaranteed route to the top for them. Of course, the other issue is, as we saw in 2013, electoral politics in Cambodia are getting more competitive. And the extent to which the opposition is able to rally and unify around strong candidates, promote good candidates from below, uh, the extent to which, with international help, Cambodia's election institutions get stronger and can deliver better elections, those things also make it less likely that some sort of, I don't even know, uh, family system develops in Cambodia. So I do think it's a very competitive situation, and, 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 one, and, and one, of course, if confirmed, I'll take, keep an eye on. Thank you, and uh, thank you to the witnesses today for your testimony, your comments, and your willingness, again, to, to serve. And in breaking with Senate tradition, uh, we are going to stay on schedule and stand in a short recess until Senator Risch uh, joins us and reconvenes at 11. Thank you. All right, thank you all for coming. Uh, this uh, subcommittee on Near East, uh, South and Central Asia, the Formulations Committee will come to order. And uh, today we have for hearing four nominees uh, for different uh, positions around the world. I want to, first of all, I want to thank all of our nominees for being here today and your families and for your willingness to serve. The countries you're nominated to uh, are uh, tough posts, to say the least, and, highlight that you, uh, and, and it really highlights that you and your families are willing to make the sacrifices uh, to go and to serve in those posts. Uh, we, really, uh, we really do appreciate your, uh, your efforts in that regard. Uh, first, I want to uh, introduce uh, I'm going to introduce all of you at once. I want to talk about each of the countries very briefly uh, and talk about where we are with them. And uh, hopefully you will correct me if I'm uh, inaccurate or add to that if you think that's appropriate. 
Uh, obviously, uh, Mr. Hale is going to Pakistan, and while the uh, official U.S. policy toward Pakistan is to assist the creation of a more stable, democratic, and prosperous Pakistan, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship is an important but equally frustrating relationship, as we all know. Support for U.S. presence in Afghanistan has been vital, but over the years, Pakistan's support for the Taliban uh, in Afghanistan and the safe havens in the Fatah has set back efforts to move Afghanistan and the region forward. The idea of a new Silk Road across South and Central Asia would bring uh, economic prosperity to many, especially in Pakistan, but border disputes with India cripple the cooperation. Uh, recently, this spring, a number of us had the opportunity to meet a delegation from the Pakistani uh, governing body, uh, the parliament that were here, and uh, I have to say, I think all of us were impressed with their sincerity and their commitment to do the things that uh, would better uh, U.S.-Pakistan relationship. The June 2014 operation against militant groups in Fatah was a good effort to bring more stability to the border with Afghanistan, and hopefully the U.S.-Pakistan strategic dialogue can produce more tangible results politically and economically. The past several years have shown us that despite enormous U.S. aid, Pakistan will only prosper when a country can create a stable environment for trade and foreign direct investment. To achieve this kind of success, the international community needs a serious partner in the Pakistan government that can deepen its political institutions and work through its relationship with India and others. After our meeting with the uh, delegation from Pakistan, I think all of us believe that they have a sincere commitment to attempt to do that. Regarding Nepal, uh, the recent earthquake in Nepal has been tragic, and the international commitment to Nepal has shifted accordingly. The outpouring of support from around the world requires a sustained focus on rebuilding the country, but donor coordination is going to be a daunting task, and we must make sure both U.S. assistance and other aid is timed appropriately and not wasted on projects that are, that are neither needed nor helpful for the people of Nepal. These kinds of things happen, of course, when you do get uh, a, uh, a flood of cash that comes in after a, uh, a serious problem has is, is, is taken place in Nepal. In the aftermath of the earthquake, I also hope there will be a renewed sense of unity that can help Nepal move forward and find the political consensus necessary to finally draft a new constitution, which, as we all know, they have been struggling with for some time. In addition, you will have to... Uh, uh, you will have a particularly important job taking care of our people. While embassy staff work to help Nepal build, they are also rebuilding their own lives and making sure they get their own support, and that will be crucial. Uh, regarding Sri Lanka and the Maldives, uh, where uh, Mr. Keshep is headed, the January election and change in power has created a substantial shift for the region. The government's efforts to tackle corruption, deepen reconciliation, and rebalance its position uh, among the other regional powers, provide an enormous opportunity for Sri, uh, for Sri Lanka. The new president, uh, we hope, will maintain uh, his commitment to change, and if indeed he follows through on that, it is going to be a sea change for the region. Uh, Ms. Uh, Galtney is going to the Kyrgyz uh, Republic. Central Asia, as we all know, has been a hard place for the United States. English is often the fourth or fifth language spoken, if at all, in the region. The dominance of Russia and the proximity of China, as well as the Soviet legacy, present significant challenges and temper expectations. Uh, the Kyrgyz Republic clearly embodies all of these intersecting challenges. However, there's still a lot of work we can do 
uh, leading up to the parliamentary elections in October, and hopefully we can find some success helping develop their economy. But I worry about the destabilizing role that Russia can play uh, for its own uh, strategic interest. With that said, I look forward to all of your testimony. First of all, I'd like to uh, briefly introduce each of the uh, uh, nominees here, uh, starting uh, with uh, Doc, or Mr. David Hale from uh, who's been uh, nominated for the Pakistan posting. Mr. Hale is a native of Michigan, who also received his undergraduate degree from the Georgetown School of Foreign Service and joined the Foreign Service in 1984. Mr. Hale has extensive experience in the Middle East, serving at posts in Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Bahrain, and others, including his most recent, uh, his most recent as U.S. Ambassador to Lebanon. He's clearly experienced in tough postings and jobs that might make Pakistan look like an easy assignment. Uh, Ms. Galtney uh, uh, is going to the Kyrgyz uh, Republic. Ms. Galtney is from Woodland, California with a BA from UC Davis and master, master's from George Washington University. Given her extensive experience working in and around Russia, Ms. Galtney has substantial experience in supporting uh, it to support her in this new role. Uh, Ms. Tevlitz, uh, uh, appointed to Nepal, was born in Chicago, Illinois, and received her BA uh, at Georgetown University. She has served in numerous positions at the State Department in the region. With her management background and the current challenges in Nepal, she is well suited to assume this position. Uh, Mr. Uh, Kelshep, who has been uh, appointed to, to serve in Sri Lanka and the Maldives, was born in Nigeria, educated at the University of Virginia with both a bachelor's and master's degree. Mr. Kelshe, Mr. Kishep has extensive experience with Southeast Asia, including his current post as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs at State. He has won numerous awards for his work and at the same time has uh, found time uh, to well raise his four children. So in any event, uh, thank you all again for, your, uh, for the uh, uh, willingness to serve and your families, likewise, for the willingness to serve. Now we'd like to hear a few minutes uh, from each of you. Uh, we'll start with Mr. Hale, who's been nominated for Pakistan. Well, Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you very much for the introduction, and thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to be the next American ambassador to the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. I am humbled by the confidence President Obama and Secretary Kerry have placed in me, and if I'm confirmed, I look forward to working with the Senate on how best to advance U.S. interests in Pakistan. I've had the privilege of serving in the Foreign Service for 31 years, and most of my career has been spent advancing U.S. interests in the Middle East and the Muslim world, as Ambassador to Lebanon, as U.S. Special Envoy to the Middle East, and earlier as Ambassador to Jordan. During my previous tours as Ambassador, my highest priority was the safety and security of all American personnel, information, and facilities, as well as the safety and security of American citizens, and if confirmed, I will have no higher priority in Pakistan. Pakistan is a strategically important country for achieving U.S. national security interests. We have a strong stake in Pakistan's ability to combat militancy and strengthen its democratic institutions. And broadly speaking, the United States has four core interests in Pakistan. First, defeating al-Qaeda and countering militancy. Second, non-proliferation and nuclear security. Third, political and economic stability, which includes respect for human rights. And fourth, regional stability, including improved relations with Afghanistan and with India. And while there's more to be done on all fronts, the last few years have witnessed progress toward these goals as the United States and Pakistan have built a more stable, forthright relationship. With regard to counterterrorism, Pakistan has taken important actions that have brought to justice several senior al-Qaeda leaders. 
It launched a significant military operation in North Waziristan last June, capturing large weapons caches and closing safe havens for multiple terrorist groups. We welcome Pakistan's commitment to target all militant groups on Pakistani soil equally, an objective that is absolutely in the interest of the United States and one on which, if confirmed, I will work closely with the Pakistani government to advance. We in the Pakistanis also share deep concern and must remain vigilant for any sign that ISIL is gaining a foothold in Pakistan. Our shared strategic interests extend well beyond any particular group. It's from the ungoverned spaces in remote parts of the border region that spring a multitude of threats, both militant and criminal, affecting Pakistan, the region, and the broader world, including America. We're also actively engaged with Pakistan on strategic stability and non-proliferation issues. While our governments do not see eye to eye on all issues, we share a number of common interests, including the high importance of ensuring nuclear security and preventing the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Relations with its neighbors play an important part in Pakistan's security and prosperity. Pakistan has undertaken important outreach to Afghanistan following the Afghan election, and the two countries have made some progress toward terrorist safe havens on both sides of the border. Given the drawdown in US forces in Afghanistan, it's all the more critical that relations between Pakistan and Afghanistan be strong and cooperative, and that Pakistan continue to put pressure on the Taliban to join an Afghan-led peace process. Pakistan's relationship with India is critical to Pakistan's future, and the normalization of relations between those two countries is vital both to them and to the region. Experience has demonstrated that sustained, consistent engagement with Pakistan provides us with the best chance to address challenges and advance our core interests. The U.S.-Pakistan strategic dialogue is the mechanism that underpins our cooperation in areas of shared interest, from counterterrorism to energy, from economic growth to defense and security. All six of the strategic dialogue working groups have met within the last year. U.S. civilian assistance to Pakistan has delivered impressive results and must continue. Our signature projects in Pakistan have added 1,500 megawatts to Pakistan's electric grid and built over 1,100 kilometers of road. U.S. security assistance to Pakistan is equally important. It directly supports Pakistan's ability to conduct counterinsurgency operations, clear terrorist safe havens, and stem the flow of deadly improvised explosive devices which have killed far too many civilians and security personnel. Should I be confirmed, I look forward to working with Congress and this committee, with our extraordinary team in both Washington and Pakistan, with the government and people of Pakistan, and with a community of Americans of Pakistani descent here in the United States. And Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Murphy, uh, let me reiterate how deeply honored I am to be here today and to be nominated as the ambassador to the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Thank you very much for considering my nomination. I'd be pleased to answer any questions. Mr. Hale, thank you very much. Uh, we've been joined uh, by Ranking Member Murphy. Uh, and uh, if you have an opening statement, we'll move on. Keep going. Uh, Ms. Tablitz, uh, you're next. We'd like to hear what you have to say. All right, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Murphy, it's an honor to appear before you today as the President's nominee for the U.S. Ambassador to Nepal. I'm grateful for this opportunity to serve our country. And I'd like to recognize some of my family uh, who are with me today, my sons, Max and Miles Malat, uh, and a shout out to those who could not be here because I would not be at this table without them and their support. Mr. Chairman, as you noted in your remarks, right now when people think of Nepal, they invariably think of the horrific earthquake of this past April and the tremendous damage it wrought. That tragedy has brought together the people of Nepal, the country's neighbors, and the international community to help the victims recover and the country rebuild. And while much has changed in Nepal since the earthquake, our overall priorities for the country remain the same, to strengthen its democracy, advance its economic growth, and improve its resiliency. 
If confirmed, I will work to advance these goals and build on the achievements of my predecessors and our 60 years of positive engagement with Nepal. I'll speak first about the last objective, improve resiliency, and then discuss the other two priorities. At the top, I'd like to extend the department's profound gratitude to Congress for its support for seismically safe housing for U.S. Embassy personnel in Kathmandu. It saved the lives of our mission personnel and enabled them to immediately assist with rescue and relief efforts, thus saving more lives and reducing the quake's impact on Americans, Nepalese, and others. The first responsibility of every U.S. ambassador is to ensure the safety and security of American citizens. And if concerned, and if confirmed, I will continue to prioritize investments that will protect our personnel and citizens. And as Nepal moves to the reconstruction phase, we will work with its governments and its, its government and its neighbors in Asia to help it build back better, to provide protection to the most vulnerable, to improve resiliency against future disasters, and to ensure that investment in, investments in Nepal's infrastructure are economically sound and environmentally stable. And as you pointed out, if confirmed, I will share your focus on donor coordination throughout this effort. Turning now to the second priority, advancing Nepal's economic growth. As we work to help Nepal's economy grow in advance, we must look to leverage its location among the booming economies of South Asia. With more investments in infrastructure, the creation of a business and investment-friendly environment, and a more integrated regional market, Nepal's entrepreneurs could harness the region's economic potential and create tremendous prosperity for their nation. Nepal's recent eligibility for Millennium Challenge Corporation Compact should help it develop some of that economic potential. If confirmed, I will actively look for opportunities to improve the business environment and support American investment in Nepal. I would lastly like to discuss our priority of strengthening Nepal's democracy. In 2006, the country emerged from a decade of civil conflict with a commitment to creating a constitution that would seal a lasting peace. The American people can be proud of the role they've played in Nepal's transition from violence to peaceful politics. That process is still underway. And there has been some significant progress lately. Nepal became eligible for an MCC compact because of its democratic progress. But much remains to be done, and our government will help Nepal where we can to advance its constitutional process and cement a hard-won peace. Maintaining that peace will require a firm commitment to human rights. And if I am confirmed, the promotion and protection of human rights will remain a central priority for Mission Kathmandu. This particularly includes protections for Tibetan refugees, for women, for disadvantaged populations, and for those vulnerable to trafficking. Mr. Chairman, I'm aware of the many challenges we will face in these efforts, from maintaining good coordination with Nepal's government and our international partners, to ensuring our resources are being spent effectively. My career in the Foreign Service has been dedicated to the efficient management of resources, whether for our missions in uh, Kabul, Dhaka, Belgium, or here in Washington at the Foreign Service Institute, or in the Bureau of South and Central Asian Affairs. My experience, it would seem, is very timely for this posting. With the support of Congress, our government is preparing for a large recovery and reconstruction effort in Nepal. And if confirmed, I hope to draw on my management experience and expertise to help ensure the people of Nepal get the best assistance we can give and that the U.S. taxpayers get the biggest bang for their buck. As that assistance effort progresses, I would, if confirmed, look forward to working closely with this committee and others in Congress to ensure our work reflects our shared priorities. Thank you again for the opportunity, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. Uh, Ms. Galtney. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ranking Member Murphy. It is a great honor to appear before you today as President Obama's nominee to serve as the United States Ambassador to the Kyrgyz Republic.
I am deeply grateful for the trust and confidence the President and Secretary Kerry have shown in me with this nomination. If confirmed, I look forward to working closely with the members of this committee and their staff to promote and protect U.S. interests in the Kyrgyz Republic. I have had the privilege of serving our country for 31 years as a Foreign Service Officer. I have served as Deputy Chief of Mission in the Kyrgyz Republic, Ukraine, and Russia, and have worked on issues related to this region for the most of my career. I can think of no higher honor than to return to represent the American people as Ambassador of the United States to the Kyrgyz Republic, a country I know and respect for its rich culture, natural beauty, and warm and hospitable people. I deeply appreciate the love and support of my family and friends throughout these years. The principles that have guided U.S. policy toward the Kyrgyz Republic remain as relevant today as they were when the country attained independence 23 years ago. Our long-term focus has always been to support and respect its sovereignty, territorial integrity, and independence. Our strategic goals are to facilitate and strengthen the Kyrgyz Republic's stability, prosperity, and democracy. The Kyrgyz Republic is Central Asia's leader in democratic development. In 2011, following the election of President Atambayev, the Kyrgyz Republic accomplished the first democratic transfer of presidential power in Central Asia. The Kyrgyz Republic has an independent parliament and a vibrant and active civil society with thousands of non-governmental organizations working in a wide variety of fields. If confirmed, I would work with the government and people of the Kyrgyz Republic to strengthen the country's democratic institutions, support the continued growth of civil society, and promote respect for human rights. Our security cooperation with the Kyrgyz Republic is focused on the common goals of countering terrorism, improving border security, and stemming the flow of illegal nar narcotics. The United States and the Kyrgyz Republic need to work together to fight human trafficking and other transnational threats. If confirmed, I would work to strengthen our ex existing partnership and continue our joint efforts to address regional and global security challenges. Expanding markets and opportunities for American business is a top priority worldwide. As Secretary Kerry says, foreign policy is economic policy. If confirmed, I would work with the Kyrgyz Republic to bolster private sector-driven economic growth, including the promotion of American economic and business interests. The Kyrgyz Republic has been a regional leader in pursuing market reform, and our two nations can work together to expand prosperity for both our countries. People-to-people -people contacts remain the bedrock of our diplomatic efforts. If confirmed, I look forward to engaging people throughout the Kyrgyz Republic and strengthening ties between the American and the Kyrgyz people. Public diplomacy efforts promote a positive understanding of the United States and help build deep and lasting ties between our countries. If confirmed, it would be my honor to ensure that our mission continues to provide U.S. citizens resident in or visiting the Kyrgyz Republic the highest quality service and utmost protection. Mr. Chairman, one of the great privileges of my career has been the opportunity to help lead teams of Americans serving at our embassies overseas, 
that are dedicated to the advancement of U.S. interests. If confirmed, I would do my best to ensure the safety, security, and well-being of my colleagues and their family members who serve at our embassy. I would maintain the highest standards of ethical conduct and moral values for our mission, including ensuring that the principles of non-discrimination and respect for diversity are respected by all in our mission. If confirmed, I would always be available to this committee, its members, and staff to discuss and work together in pursuit of U.S. Natural, national interests in the Kyrgyz Republic. <coughs> Mr. Chairman, I thank you for this opportunity to appear before you and the other members of the subcommittee and look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we're now going to have a series of questions. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to pass you up, Mr. Keshe. Uh, your turn. I apologize. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ranking Member Murphy, Senator Shaheen, it is indeed an honor to appear before you today as the President's nominee to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Sri Lanka and to the Maldives. I am grateful to President Obama for his trust and confidence in nominating me and to Secretary Kerry and my State Department colleagues, particularly Assistant Secretary Nisha Biswal, for their support. Uh, permit me to begin, Mr. Chair, by thanking my wife, Karen Young Keshup, who is also a Foreign Service Officer, for her love and support throughout the two decades we have served our country and for raising our four wonderful children, Carolyn, Emily, James, and Charlotte, who are here today. I'm honored to be here as well with my respected mother, Zoe Antoinette Calvert, who served in the United States Foreign Service in the 1950s and 60s in our embassies in India and the United Kingdom. I also pay tribute to my late father, Dr. Keshup Chandra Sen, an immigrant to this country from India, who served the United Nations as a development economist. Mr. Chairman, due to my father's UN service, my early years were spent at schools overseas, where the children of American diplomats were my earliest friends. My parents' service and my upbringing instilled in me a firm dedication and commitment to American values and led me to a career in the Foreign Service. Mr. Chairman, if confirmed, my top priorities will be to ensure the safety and security of American citizens and to advance the interests and values of the United States and the American people. In Sri Lanka, our primary interest is to help the people of that island succeed as a prosperous, unified, reconciled, peaceful, and democratic nation. At the beginning of this year, the people of South Asia's oldest democracy courageously chose a new path of hope and renewal. Since January, Sri Lanka has made progress on challenging issues from fighting corruption and media censorship to beginning the long process of healing after decades of war. We want to help the Sri Lankan people strengthen democracy, civil society, and human rights, including media freedom and freedom of religion. We want to help build a lasting peace and fellowship among Sri Lanka's ethnic and religious communities, including credible justice, accountability, and reconciliation that can facilitate closure for those who suffered and lost loved ones during the war. It is important to get this right and the UN and the international community can lend useful insight to the efforts of the Sri Lankan people. Economically, the US is Sri Lanka's largest export market. While our trade volume is currently relatively low, I believe there is great potential to expand our partnership. In the security realm, our demining efforts have helped farmers return to once war-ravaged land. There is also room for closer cooperation on disaster response and maritime security. 
Sri Lanka is a regional leader in the fight against cybercrime, a contributor to UN peacekeeping operations, and is focused on disrupting drug trafficking and fighting maritime piracy. As we look to advance our interests across the, Sri uh, across the Indo-Pacific, Sri Lanka can be a critical partner. I'll now turn to the Maldives, where a young and dynamic populace is on the front lines of climate change. This island nation also faces challenges with youth unemployment, rising extremism, and social unrest. We are worried, however, about the current state of rule of law, due process, and human rights. All citizens should be allowed to exercise their human rights and fundamental freedoms. We must remain engaged, however, on several important mutual interests, including countering violent extremism, reducing the impact of climate change, and, as with Sri Lanka, ensuring security in the Indian Ocean. We want a better relationship with Maldives so that we can deepen that cooperation. And we want to help it return to the democratic path on which it courageously embarked a few years ago and look forward to strengthening our relationship when that happens. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Murphy, Senator Shaheen, the democratic progress, economic growth, and security of Sri Lanka and Maldives affect not just their own countries, but the broader Indo-Pacific region. If confirmed, I will consult closely with this committee and others in Congress to advance U.S. values and interests. Thank you very much for your consideration of my nomination. I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you very much. <clears throat> now we will go through a uh, round of questions uh, from each of us. And I'm, uh, uh, since I tried to short you, Mr. Keshap, I'll start there. Uh, your uh, description of what's happened uh, recently in Sri Lanka with the uh, election of the new president uh, certainly uh, uh, reflects, I think, uh, all of our hopes and uh, our, our uh, good wishes for the people of, uh, of that country. What, what is, what, uh, I hear your description of it. What's happening today? Is, is that movement uh, uh, increasing? Is it decreasing? Is it leveled off? Where, where are we today as far as the movement from the January election? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I take great heart and confidence in the uh, uh, significant desire of the people of Sri Lanka to embark upon a new path in their country. Uh, the election of January 8 reflected a broad-based uh, uh, decision, I think, by the people of Sri Lanka to um, uh, improve relations with the international community, to strengthen democracy and human rights, to reinforce civil society, and to really put Sri Lanka on a path toward uh, a process of reconciliation that can yield a unified, peaceful country. Uh, if confirmed, Mr. Chairman, I would work very hard toward helping the people of Sri Lanka to achieve that vision. Secretary Kerry was in Sri Lanka on May the 2nd, and he spoke very eloquently about our, uh, the United States' desire to help the Sri Lankan people with this. Obviously, the politics uh, in any democracy are going to be uh, robust and at times messy. There's a lot that needs to be worked out. Uh, these, there are some significant issues that have stemmed from three decades of uh, conflict and post-conflict period. Uh, but I think that the United States can be a good friend to the efforts and the vision of the people of Sri Lanka and, and really contribute to the achievement of that vision. And if confirmed, uh, I look forward to adding my energy to that. We appreciate that. Regarding the, uh, the Maldives, uh, one of the, uh, you made brief reference to the fact that uh, there is uh, this growing extremism in the country. Recent reports 
uh, media reports indicate that about 200 of the uh, young people there are radicals who have le left and uh, gone to fight with ISIS. For a small country like that, 200 is a pretty substantial number, particularly in light of the fact that if that's what it is, it's usually underreported, so it's probably higher than that. What are your thoughts on that? Mr. Chairman, it is a matter of concern, and uh, we have an ongoing uh, conversation with the Maldives about this issue and others. Uh, from my perspective, I think that uh, we, what we want to do is try to encourage the people of Maldives and the government of Maldives to ensure greater freedoms and democracy for their people. Uh, that is the key to ensuring stability, to attracting quality investment, to ensuring economic growth, to giving people opportunity, and hopefully also to countering violent extremism. This is an issue that is very much uh, on the radar, and I appreciate your perspectives on this as well. And if confirmed, I would work very hard with the government of the Maldives uh, and uh, with partners in the U.S. who work on countering violent extremism to address this issue. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Uh, Ms. Teplitz, uh, we both made reference in uh, our previous comments to the uh, donor coordination. Uh, what, what are you, tell me a little bit about what your thoughts on uh, a little more detail, how, how you plan to attack that. Uh, thank you, Senator. I think the donor coordination issue is actually one of the most critical for the success of our programs and assistance to the Nepalese people in this recovery phase. Uh, the, uh, my colleague, uh, Ambassador Bodhi, has been leading the donor coordination effort in Kathmandu, and if confirmed, that's something that I intend to do uh, as well. And I think it's essential for the United States to be in front of that effort, both uh, with bilateral donors and multilateral donors, to ensure that assistance is well-targeted, not duplicative, uh, and well-aligned with the needs of the people of Nepal. Have you found that the, uh, the, the people uh, of Nepal are open uh, to the U.S. assistance in that regard as far as uh, donor coordination is concerned? Uh, sir, I'm not yet there, but uh, my understanding through consultations uh, is that we have a very excellent relationship with uh, the government, with other actors, civil society, uh, non-governmental organizations. We've had a very productive relationship there, and I see no reason why that would change uh, and look forward, in fact, if confirmed, to engaging in a dialogue with an array of people to best serve, ultimately, the people of Nepal. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, Ms. Galtney, uh, the... The country you're going to is an interesting country, and of course, uh, they have the tremendous influence of Russia because of the years uh, that they spent uh, there under their thumb. Um, t tell me a little bit, the, the fact that we've withdrawn from the uh, Manas Air Base and the fact that the Chinese are attempting to uh, increase their influence there, how, how, what, what are your thoughts on our prospects for hanging on to uh, our ability to exert, uh, hopefully, some U.S. influence there? Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I agree with your uh, assessment that uh, the Kyrgyz Republic is located at the intersection of many challenges. Um, it, it, first, I'd like to state that uh, we are grateful to the Kyrgyz people uh, for the Manas Transit Center and for the Certainly. support that they provided to the ISAF forces in Afghanistan. It uh, was never intended to be a permanent facility, and we cooperated very closely with the Kyrgyz uh, government for an orderly transition to that facility. More broadly, Senator, to your question about regional influence of Russia and China, for the most part, Chinese influence is, uh, is economic. Uh, China is Kyrgyzstan's largest trading partner, 
and it has made clear that it has an interest in expanding trade and in link, expanding linkages throughout the region. There may be some complementary uh, complementarities between the Chinese view and our view on the importance of increasing economic linkages among the countries of Central Asia and between the countries of Central Asia and other regions. Uh, with regard to Russia, it is true that, uh, that the Kyrgyz Republic and Russia have a shared history. Uh, they have a number of economic linkages, but as recent as the April bilateral consultations that we had with the Kyrgyz government here in Washington, the Kyrgyz made clear to us their interest in having a strong and productive relationship with us. We think it is very important that Kyrgyzstan have the space to make its own decisions about its political autonomy, about its economic linkages, about the future of the country. We do not think that it is appropriate for any country to pose a zero-sum uh, approach uh, on the Kyrgyz, we think the Kyrgyz should have the right to make that decision for themselves. And if confirmed, Senator, I intend to work very hard to deepen and expand our cooperation with the Kyrgyz Republic. Thank you. Um, finally, Mr. Hale, uh, uh, tell me a little bit about, uh, about the relationship between the special rep for Afghanistan and, and Pakistan and the assistant for uh, South and Central Asia and yourself. How do the three of you work as far as that country's concerned? We know the complexity of it, and as I said, those of us who met with the members of parliament here in April were, were impressed with uh, uh, their stated purposes. Uh, but tell me how the, 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 the three of you work uh, in that regard. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I've obviously just begun my consultations, uh, still serving at the embassy in Beirut. Uh, but if confirmed, I look forward to a very close working relationship with both the Assistant Secretary for South and Central Asia and the Special Representative. Um, I myself served as a Special Envoy, so I can stress uh, from firsthand experience uh, the importance that there be a very much a whole government approach uh, to any problem that a Special Envoy is focused on. A Special Envoy or representative brings a higher level of focus and energy uh, to a particular issue, uh, but success very much depends upon a cooperative relationship with all of the entities in the government, including the Assistant Secretary, who are watching the bilateral relationships and the geopolitical and strategic uh, picture in the region. As Ambassador to Pakistan, if confirmed, I would report to the Special Representative uh, and to the Secretary of State ultimately, uh, but I expect very close integration with the Bureau. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Welcome to all of you. I'm sorry that I missed the very beginning of your uh, opening uh, remarks. Um, Ambassador Hale, uh, thank you for your service after uh, um, a very difficult and tumultuous service in Beirut. Uh, I'm glad that you are going to get a few years off in Islamabad. Um, don't know how you manage that, but uh, we're grateful that you accepted the uh, appointment. Um, uh, we're having a debate here about <coughs> What constitutes our national security budget? Uh, right now there's a proposal that the Senate and the House exceed the budget caps for the Defense Department, but that we don't exceed the caps for other spending that many of us would consider to be in instrumental to national security. On that list would be our foreign assistance programs. One of the most important jobs you're going to have is to oversee the implementation of the Kerry Luger Berman Act. Um, can you give us 
um, your understanding um, as to the update of its implementation. I know a little bit of a rocky start in terms of uh, getting the money to the right partners on the ground, but how important is, th is that program, is that funding stream to our ability to influence uh, events on the ground inside Pakistan today? Well, I think it's proven to be critically important. Um, obviously, our primary goal is to enhance Pakistan's cooperation with us in the counterterrorism field. But I think we've all learned over time that uh, simply relying and focusing on a traditional military-to-military -military assistance approach isn't going to get the full results that we require. Uh, Pakistan needs to have a stability. It needs to have a government that is addressing the needs of its people. Um, it needs to ensure that the citizenry can turn uh, to the traditional leaders for energy, for education, for all of the things that countries expect to, to, uh, to, to, to receive from their state. Um, this is a challenge in Pakistan. It's a poor country, it's an emerging democracy, uh, but the resources that the Kerry Luger Berman uh, process has brought to Pakistan, I think, have shown results already. Um, they're focused in uh, several key areas. I mentioned energy, but also education, uh, economic growth, health, and a very important category is stabilization, so that when Pakistan is clearing out certain areas like they are today in North Waziristan of insurgents, that there is an ability and resources to rush in that golden hour with the kind of services that citizens expect. Uh, they also, I think there's an important point to, to bear in mind that, that this relationship serves best our two sides when it's predictable. When, when the Pakistanis, the Americans who are looking at this relationship can see for years out what the expectations are, what the deliveries will be. And I think for Pakistan to sustain what we feel they must for their interests and ours in terms of security cooperation, it's critical that we be helping them in these developmental fields as well. We watched uh, video and reports yesterday of uh, Taliban attacks on the parliament building in Kabul. Um, very disturbing to watch. There's a, uh, other <coughs> um, advancements the Taliban has made, uh, taking control of several towns in the north and in the west. Um, and yet there's also reports of the facilitation of a dialogue uh, between uh, the Taliban and the Afghan government. Um, what's, so let me ask a specific question. What is your understanding today of the disposition of uh, ISI with respect to its coordination with uh, some of these elements within uh, Afghanistan? I know we've made a lot of progress there and there were reports of commitments made in Secretary Kerry's last uh, bilateral meetings uh, with respect to the Haqqani network. I know separate and aside um, from some of the issues surrounding the Taliban, but as the situation seems to get more unstable inside Afghanistan, um, are the Pakistanis um, able to help us uh, try to address some of those security concerns inside Afghanistan? Well, Senator, this is a crucial area, <clears throat> excuse me, it'll be one <clears throat> that I'll be very much focused on if I'm confirmed. I do think that there has been progress. Uh, we've seen, uh, I think, a change in direction by the Pakistani leadership itself. Um, there are opportunities posed by the election of President Ghani in Afghanistan, the emergence of new leaders in Pakistan, and they are talking uh, and, uh, and beginning to coordinate a strategy. Uh, in May of this year, uh, we saw that Prime Minister Sharif and President Ghani met and they pledged joint efforts to crack down on the very groups that you've mentioned based in each state's territory. And they're talking about coordinated operations that will be undertaken to basically eliminate these safe havens along the, the border area. Um, obviously, words are one thing. 
uh, what we need to see beyond these commitments, important as they are, is actual action on the ground and effective steps to be taken. And I think that that uh, is something we will be obviously pressing for, uh, particularly in addition to targeting the militant groups, uh, pushing them and pressurizing them into the political reconciliation process that ultimately is the, the best means for stabilizing Afghanistan. Um, to uh, Ms. Teplitz and uh, Mr. Keshev, the same question. You're going to be in countries that uh, have to balance themselves between two great powers, between China and India. Um, could you just speak to what the U.S. interests are uh, with respect to uh, which way those two countries lean or tack? Um, why would we care about uh, the direction that either of those countries is heading in terms of trying to manage uh, their alliances with those two countries? Mr. Keshep first and then Ms. Teplitz. Sure. <clears throat> Thank you, Senator Murphy. Uh, I think the overarching U.S. goal uh, is to try to help the Sri Lankan people strengthen their democracy to the greatest extent possible. Uh, by doing that and by fostering a real culture of accountability and meaningful reconciliation for the past, it can lay the foundations for a really prosperous and unified uh, democracy going forward that can be a real platform for stability, not only uh, in its region, in the Indian Ocean region, but across the Indo-Pacific. I do believe that uh, America's most enduring partnerships are with democracies, and so if confirmed, I would very much want to direct my energies and efforts and those of my team toward uh, intensifying the U.S. bilateral relationship in a way that is helpful and relevant to the people of Syria. But are you saying, but I mean, you're, so you're saying let's just focus on the quality of democracy, or is that a way of saying we should, we should be agnostic as to the question of their balance of allegiance between China and India? Senator, I think uh, the... The issue here is to make sure that Sri Lanka can be a robust and contributing partner to security in the Indian Ocean. And in that regard, they obviously will need to make their own choices, but I do feel that the U.S. should always be the preferred partner uh, in advancing democratic values, rules-based order, uh, transparent norms, uh, peaceful settlement of disputes, and I do think we can work in concert with democracies in advancing those strategic goals. Ms. Teplitz. Thank you, Senator. And while I echo many of the sentiments of my uh, colleague here about the situation with uh, Nepal, um, I think our, the U.S. interests are for a prosperous and stable South Asia. Nepal is a part of, and I partner in, achieving that. Uh, it does have to balance its two neighbors, China and India, as you've pointed out with your question. And I think our role in that is ensuring at this stage um, that there are positive contributions, positive and coordinated contributions to the earthquake recovery effort. This actually gives us an opportunity to work very closely, uh, not only with the government of Nepal, with whom we have a very strong relationship, but also with uh, these neighbors um, to have a very productive outcome. And that what happens on the ground in Kathmandu is going to be crucial in contributing towards a positive outcome. And if confirmed, I definitely plan to um, make this careful balance a priority. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I've got a hard stop that I have to go to another meeting at, but I want to uh, give uh, uh, Senator Shaheen a chance to uh, ask questions, and also uh, uh, Senator Murphy, if you have any more questions. If not, if you'd, cl if you'd close the meeting for me uh, when we're done. The record will remain open until close of business on Thursday for questions. 
And uh, so we'll put that into the record. And with that, uh, Senator Murphy, I'm gonna turn uh, this over to you and Senator Shaheen for questions. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. And thank you all for your willingness to continue to serve. Um, for many of you, you've served for many years and we very much appreciate that. Um, I wanna pick up Ambassador Hale where Senator Murphy um, left off in terms of the renewed efforts to improve negotiations with Afghanistan and Pakistan and um, the possibility that that might help with um, moving the dialogue with the Taliban and um, hopefully moving towards peace. Can you talk a little bit about um, what your assessment is of whether they're making progress and whether you see the potential and what the United States can do to help with that effort? I'm sorry, I think it's at an early stage, uh, frankly, to make sweeping judgments, but it does appear that they're on the right path. President Ghani's commitment is, is very clear. Um, he's taking a lot on this. Um, it's gonna require cooperation from Pakistan, and I think, again, Prime Minister Sharif has made, made the right commitments, said the right words. It's been followed up by travel by General Raheel, uh, the military chief of staff, uh, and by intelligence officers as well. Um, there has to be, actually, as I said earlier, actions that follow up on these commitments, and so we'll be judging that. Will there be actions against the safe havens? Will they be cutting off the, the terrorist financing links? Will they be really putting their influence behind the effort to do what you just said, to encourage a participation, a meaningful participation, in the Afghan-led uh, reconciliation process. Um, the, we've talked about this for a while. Um, I think that there is a new opportunity here and a new atmosphere because these are new leaders who are doing this. And I think that the fact that, Afghan, that Pakistan itself has suffered so greatly from terrorist attacks, most recently the tragedy in Peshawar, also the Karachi airport attack, that that may have contributed to the shift and, and understanding that Pakistan's national security interests really are at stake here. And that the stability and the security and building a democracy in Afghanistan is every bit as important to the people of Pakistan as it is to those in Afghanistan. All I can say, Senator, is that if confirmed, my job will be primarily to focus on this endeavor, given the stakes for the United States here, and I will, I will put my full effort behind that. And do you see, as Prime Minister Zarif has taken over, do you see any progress on the effort to um, be more inclusive in Pakistan to um, reduce what, what we would call hate crimes in the United States against um, people who are against non-Muslims? Uh, I, I really will have to uh, get out there myself if I'm confirmed and make a judgment and come back to you and your staff, but there's a long way to go. Um, so I hope uh, democracy will be more inclined to be respectful of minorities and of its people. I don't know for, for sure, but you look at the record, there's, as I said, a tremendous task ahead. Uh, religious min minorities, women, uh, other vulnerable segments of that society definitely need protection, and the United States needs to uh, stand up, speak loudly about that, but also work behind the scenes with quiet diplomacy so that Pakistan's elected leaders understand what's at stake here, and also to use the tools in our assistance program that Congress has been so generous in providing so that NGOs and other groups are able to uh, provide uh, all kinds of programs can help not just with protections but to advance recognition of the importance of the rights of minorities. No, I visited um, in Pakistan 
several years ago, right after they were, um, had gone into the Swat Valley and were responding to terrorist attacks there, and was very impressed with the effort of um, the government and the military to take on, um, really to fight against their own citizens to address the terrorism threat. Um, but recent reports have suggested that those efforts have been less successful than I certainly would have hoped based on that effort several years ago. And I wonder if you have any uh, reports on the commitment there and the extent to which um, the military has been able to take on some of these terrorist elements. Well, again, I, I think it's important to, to remember the context, which is that Pakistanis themselves are suffering greatly from the attacks and threats posed by these groups. That's point one. Uh, point two, I think any rational analyst of Pakistan and the situation there would recognize that tolerating one group of extremists or insurgents uh, on your soil while just uh, uh, targeting another group isn't going to create a, a stable environment at all. So that's, I think, a very important lesson for, for any leader in that region to understand. Uh, third, I think it's important to remember where the successes have been. Uh, Pakistan's uh, military leadership and, and its soldiers have done admirable work in countering the al-Qaeda threat and doing maximum effort to, to uh, eliminate that. Um, always gaps, but there have been arrests, there have been some substantial activities. Uh, countering IEDs is another area with these export, the manufacture and the export of these IEDs into Afghanistan. Uh, wrapping that up, again, not completed, but substantial efforts have been invested in that. Uh, working on these areas of insurgents and militants is the next big project, and obviously there has been progress. Um, I don't have the first-hand experience that you have, Senator, in observing this. I'm concerned by your observation, and I'll want to look into that myself when I get out there. But right now, the, the campaign in North Waziristan has produced results. It has cleared out substantial areas. It is soaking up safe havens. It's critically important that other groups not come in now and exploit those areas, and that the mm -hmm. state remain present, not just with the constabulary and the army, but as I said earlier in response to a question, that the whole of government is rushing in there and providing the services and the economy that any Pakistani citizen should expect of their, their government. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator. I just have uh, two more questions. Um, uh, Ambassador Hale, um, there are different reports about the effectiveness of ISIS in establishing a foothold within Pakistan. Um, uh, many suggest that there's a lot of factors that are going to inhibit their ability to grow more than a handful uh, of activists uh, there. Um, what's, what's your understanding heading into uh, Islamabad as to how much time you might be spending on this question of, um, uh, of ISIS presence inside Pakistan? Well, again, I'll need to, to get there if I'm confirmed to judge for myself, but the briefings I've had suggest that so far the ISIS threat is relatively small and contained. Um, but having served as I have so many years in the Levant, um, complacency is the last thing I'm taking with me uh, to Pakistan on this front. Uh, ISIS has shown that it's potent and it can exploit uh, areas of, that are ungoverned quite rapidly. And we all know there are ungoverned spaces in Pakistan. So while there may be cultural and other factors that have reduced uh, ISIS's ability, at least initially, to make inroads, um, I think we have to be very vigilant about that and make sure that the Pakistani leadership knows, as I think those in the Levant do, that um, moderate Muslim leaders themselves are the first targets of this phenomenon and therefore have an extra responsibility to, to, to preempt them. Uh, uh, Ms. Galtney, um, 
Should we care about uh, the Kyrgyz Republic's um, uh, joining the Eurasian Union? Is this a economic body that presents any kind of real threat to the United States without uh, membership on the uh, western edge of Russia? Um, is, is this something that you think you're going to be spending uh, time on, or should we just let it lie and not worry too much uh, about it? Thank you, Senator, for your question. Uh, the Kyrgyz Republic is poised to join the Eurasian Economic Union uh, in the upcoming weeks. And one thing that we have made very clear is, of course, first and foremost, our support for free trade. Uh, and secondly, equally importantly, is the fact that as a member of the WTO, and the Kyrgyz Republic was the first former Soviet Republic to join the WTO uh, in 1998, but that in its accession to uh, the Eurasian Economic Union, the Kyrgyz Republic needs to be mindful and to uphold its obligations under the WTO. I think it is early days, sir, to, uh, to be able to calibrate exactly what the impact, the economic impact of uh, accession to this organization will be. But if confirmed, it is certainly something that I will pay a great deal of attention to. And in uh, not only because of Kyrgyzstan's WTO commitments, but because I am committed to the promotion of American exports and uh, support for American business. And we will want to keep that space open. Well, thank you to you all. Um, I am uh, tempted to ask my staff to do some quick research on what uh, parliamentary maneuvers I can use now that I'm in charge of the subcommittee. Uh, but uh, instead, uh, I will just uh, note that uh, uh, the record does stand open. So if you do get uh, follow-up questions from members of the subcommittee who aren't here, I hope you turn them around uh, quickly. Uh, and with that, using uh, uh, bottled water, uh, this hearing is uh, now adjourned. <laughs>